What footwear might do is either change the total amount of load that goes into each stride. So uh, think it back to like a minimal issue, which might lead to a decreased step length, which is going to reduce peak vertical ground reaction forces. So maybe it's going to decrease the total load per stride and or it may just shift the loading profile of where you're receiving more load. So it, it can really modify a lot of things, but running related injuries can't happen without the presence of running. So in my mind, if you want to prevent running related injuries, you don't run. It's, it's that simple. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust, and we fulfill that mission through the Clinical Athlete Directory. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider or certified Clinical Athlete Barbell Coach at clinicalathlete.com. Our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill that mission, and another way is the Clinical Athlete Forum. The forum is our education, mentorship, and networking community where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To learn more about Clinical Athlete and everything that I just mentioned, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com. If you enjoy this podcast, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by our usual co-hosts, Jared Maynard and John Flagg. Jared is a physiotherapist and powerlifting coach in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, a clinical athlete provider and the clinical athlete continuing education director. John is a certified athletic trainer and powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach in Maryland, a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. This is part two of our awesome conversation with Jason Torrey about footwear for the running athlete. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, make sure you do that first because we're jumping right back into the conversation here. Enjoy. Before we get into that, because this is clinical athlete, we're thinking always about injury and rehab and injury risk and injury uh, risk reduction and these types of things. What is the literature saying in regards to footwear in terms of injury risk and injury risk reduction? Footwear as a whole, you mean? Yeah, for the running athlete, does it play a part? Are we increasing our risk with certain footwear? or certain uses of footwear, um, even just wearing the same shoe for too long, anything in that realm, and then can we reduce risk with footwear interventions? Yeah, so I would say uh, easy easy first answer is we can't reduce risk with footwear interventions. Um, I think it goes back to describing running-related injuries as a complex system, So, which is always what it goes back to with me. Uh, you have an interacting network of intrinsic and extrinsic risk factors. Uh, some of them are weighted more than others. Some of them interact and are moderators of others. Uh, and so we, we really don't 
have a lot of faith to say that footwear as a whole can either cause injury or be very protective for injury when it plays such a small role of that puzzle. Um, I do think that what footwear can do is be a modifier of training load. And so <clears throat> Bertelsen is, is the most commonly cited running related injury framework uh, that came out in 2017, which is um, it's, it's basically your load into the system versus load capacity imbalance. Uh, and it describes it from a stride by stride basis and also from a session by session basis. And so what footwear can do is from a session to session standpoint, it, it can allow you to train a little bit more or a little bit less depending on how well your body responds to it. So we've, uh, you know, if we've ever put on a new pair of shoes and walked around a lot in one day and then been kind of sore from it afterwards, you could say that that's a modifier because it's allowing you, it's not going to allow you to do very much all at once. Uh, but then from an individual stride standpoint, what footwear might do is either change the total amount of load that goes into each stride. So uh, think it back to like a minimal issue, which might lead to a decreased step length, which is going to reduce peak vertical ground reaction forces. So maybe it's going to decrease the total load per stride um, or and or it may just shift the loading profile of where you're receiving more load. So it, it can really modify a lot of things, but running related injuries can't happen without the presence of running. So in my mind, if you want to prevent running related injuries, you don't run. It's, it's that simple. If you do want to run and you want to prevent injuries, then it's a lot more complicated. So it sounds like that still leaves us as clinicians and coaches with the ever-present issue of trying to explain the relevant aspects of complex systems to the person in front of us who just asked us, hey, I've got this knee issue. I started running. Is, are these good shoes? What shoes should I get? And tell me if you've had this experience. I'm guessing that you probably have, but I often find myself sitting in my stool thinking, um, where do I even start? But trying to still be accurate not just give a nice sounding sound bite while making sure that they walk away from that experience at the end of it, feeling like they got what they needed or like they had some sort of concrete answer or as concrete of one as I could give them. So maybe the question is, what do we do? How do you navigate that situation generally? Yeah. So I think the, uh, it, talking to somebody about too much too soon usually makes a lot of sense to them. And, and that's from a, from a training load standpoint or from a, well, you know, you, you just shifted some load around and then you did a little bit too much too soon with that new loading profile. Uh, and that I think is a great transition into uh, talking about the minimalist index, because I think that's a very useful tool for both clinicians, runners, and researchers. Uh, and it's, it, in my opinion, it's been pretty underrated. It's been out for the last five years. Uh, but J.F. Escoulier, uh, he did this uh, Delphi study where his first goal was to explain and define what is a minimalist shoe because it's useful to actually have definitions for things like this. So the minimalist shoe definition is basically something that has a lot of flexibility, both uh, from a longitudinal standpoint and torsional. Uh, torsional being like you're wringing out a towel, basically. Uh, and, and the minimal shoe also has generally a low drop. Uh, it's very light. It has a low stack height. And it lacks a lot of the traditional stability devices. And traditional stability devices, um, something that 
uh, you know, if you, if you go on that minimalist index website that, that will be linked in the show notes, uh, they have pictures of all these different things that you can check off and see whether your shoe has it or not. Um, but basically that's, that's a minimalist shoe. And this index can grade a shoe from a zero to 100 scale where uh, zero is, is not minimalist whatsoever. It's very maximalist. Uh, and 100 is like your vibrant five fingers barely wearing a shoe. Uh, so I think <clears throat> from giving somebody something tangible, it's it's basically common sense with numbers, the way I see it. So it's it's giving them something that says, all right, we can grade what shoe you're wearing right now. And if we wanted to reduce the chances that you did too much too soon by transitioning to something that was too far away from where you were at too quickly, then we're going to take the score of both of these shoes that you're considering. And then we've got this rule of thumb to how to translate from, from one to the other. Uh, and the rule of thumb that they came out with is, a, is a, a pretty conservative one month transition for every 10 to 20 point difference on that zero to 100 scale. So if you're, you know, you're starting off in a 10% a, a shoe, uh, getting to a 30% shoe, it's probably gonna take you one month or a little bit longer. Got you. As opposed to somebody who's who was running in, on pillows and then bought their Vibram Five Fingers <laughs> and then increased their mileage at the same time. Right. So that's a that's a lot of too much too soon at once, right. uh, and some great educational points for that runner. That that approach that makes a lot of sense too, and it sounds like it it just makes it easier for for us as clinicians and coaches to still keep the the athlete doing something because. I think as a general rule of thumb, most athletes might approach a sort of a rehab situation expecting to be told to not do their thing or do it a lot less. Um, the, the general stereotype seems to be that runners are, are especially afraid of that, which I would, I would get for sure. So being able to, what's that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably a big reason for why a lot of runners don't seek immediate treatment uh, because they're just, they know what they're going to get told. And a lot of clinicians will probably tell them that. So right, right so, in doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's fair. So this seems like a better way forward in terms of still giving some tangible action steps that are grounded in the research we currently have and that are sort of time limited. So there's, there's a sequence, you know, where it's not just do this forever. It's more like, here's where we are. Here are the other relevant factors that we probably found out through your history and through the examination. Here's what I think, you know, what do you think? And then you kind of piece the plan together. Like we probably do most of the time. Yeah. And if we suspect that this, that one of the main factors and why they got injured was that they transitioned into a certain type of shoe too quickly, then it's an educational point to say, all right, well, you can still try to do that, but let's just stretch out over a longer period of time because humans have a great ability to adapt. It definitely is finite, uh, but we do pretty well when we have small changes over time and we don't do so well if we do too much too soon after too little for too long, the old Scott Morrison saying. Jason, what's your thought on the line of research indicating parallel use, parallel use of different shoes or just rotating different shoes at the, at the same time, not not waiting until one wears out, but actually having two different types of running shoes that you just switch off on. Right. Thoughts on that? Yeah, so there was one uh, article by Laurent Malisu, who's also a very well-published author in, in the running footwear area. Um, that 
was a, a prospective study where it showed that runners who did switch their shoes more often, I think they had about, it was like uh, three pairs on average, uh, they had a lower injury rate at the end of this period of time that they were following them. Um, I don't really put too much stock into that because of the this, the actual population. It was they were recreational runners that didn't run too often, and there were not really significant differences between the groups. Um, that was probably a finding that was taken a little bit too far. It, we d- certainly can't say that that was the reason why they got injured less. It's more of an as- association. Um, I. Th- I mean, a lot of people use that study to justify wearing and buying a lot of running shoes, and I support that. Uh, but vaporheads, right? Yeah, the, the vaporheads are all about it. Um, but I don't know that there's actually too much research behind it, other than it may just make sense to change the loading profile of your foot every now and then. Um, but you could also make the case that if you're really trying to adapt to one particular thing, then maybe you don't want to change the loading profile too much. So I think you could make an argument either way. So what if we decide that we don't want to do that? We want to adapt to one particular loading pattern and one particular shoe. That shoe is not going to last forever. Does the wearing out of the shoe have any implication on either injury risk or performance? Yeah, so the uh, the age of the shoe literature is pretty bare. Uh, it's it's surprisingly something that you would think would have a lot of research behind it at this point. But uh, the, the uh, review that Malsu just put out last week uh, highlighted that there actually isn't much more than just the common uh, expert opinion on change your shoes every whatever, 800 to 1,000 kilometers or something. Uh, and different types of shoes are going to have different life spans too. So thinking about like the, uh, the vapor flies, which maybe last 200 miles or it actually sounds better when you say they last 300 kilometers. So they last 300 kilometers compared to like your rule of thumb of, well, if you're regularly running, change your shoes every three months. Um, it's not a lot we can be confident about to, from a, a prescription side there. I do think it probably makes a difference. We just don't know. That blows my mind with the vapor flies because the people who are buying the vapor flies run a lot, and 200 miles is not a long is not a lot for for that yeah. population. It's like a dollar like a mile shoe for yeah, man. <laughs> so you uh, yeah, you usually either see people who only wear them on race day, or they just buy a ton of them and wear them all the time. Right. So when a shoe is worn, like, can you just when do you need to buy another pair of shoes? Like we're just looking at a shoe and you're like. You, dude, is it literally when the outsole and the, your foot is coming out of the shoe or are you looking at different things? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can look at wear pattern and if, if the outsole is just completely destroyed and they're working through the midsole of the shoe, then it's kind of a common sense recommendation. Um, sometimes I'll have, I mean, just the subjective feeling of like, yeah, these shoes just feel kind of stale and stiff at this point. Um, which is not a scientific thing whatsoever, uh, or having somebody just go to a store and try on a new pair of the shoes that they're already wearing or something like that so that they can see, oh man, those things were pretty shot. And I now realize that by comparing it to this thing that is new. Does it have any, first of all, the feeling of going, of putting on a new pair of shoes and then putting on your old pair of shoes, God, you feel like a hobo. It's, I feel like every time I uh, rent a car, 
<laughs> I rent this nice car and then I go back to my little Honda and I'm like, uh Where the windows actually go down. <laughs> hey, my windows go down. My windows go down. Um, sure? My visor broke. Anyway, does the wearing of the shoe over time affect the compliance and the resilience? So that's a good, good question. I would say probably yes. We don't really know how to quantify that. If, if something is very apparently worn all the way through the outsole into the midsole, then definitely yes. Um, but there's, there's kind of like also the expert opinion that a foam only has so much lifespan in terms of resilience before it will be less effective at rebounding. Uh, so for like from a mechanical failure standpoint, that, that makes sense to me, but I haven't seen uh, any research on it. Well, is that where the, like the 200 miles for the vapor fly, why, you know, why do they say 200 miles? What happens after that point? So anecdotally, uh, that's about when the outsole wears out and you start to work into that uh, midsole. And that PBAX foam midsole does not hold up well when it doesn't have any outsole on it. Just somewhat related, at least in my mind, something that comes up with with clients <clears throat> in the clinic is they'll bring in their shoes and they'll talk about their their wear patterns uh, on the soles of the, of the shoe. Do we have much research or yeah, what do we know about the necessity of sort of analyzing those wear patterns and then uh, to inform coaching decisions with regards to strike pattern or running mechanics? Sure. So this this is actually now a good time to talk about my uh, running footwear store experience because yes. when I was working in footwear in uh, 2011 or something around this time, uh, there was the 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 train the in store training as a as an employee on looking at wear patterns and then figuring out if somebody is a supinator or an overpronator. And for the podcast listeners, I'm using air quotes for both of those things. Uh, so yeah, there is, there is not strong evidence that the wear pattern on a shoe can accurately predict how a runner looks from a kinematic standpoint. Um, and even when we do see a runner maybe with, um, uh, rear foot eversion, that's, uh, a little above, no, whatever normal is, uh, we don't have strong evidence that says that's really an issue, at least for global running related injuries. Uh, so I would say wear pattern, probably not something to worry about too much. If you want to do a, a gait analysis and see how they're actually moving, that will give you much more information than just looking at the wear on the shoes or, you know, it's similar to just looking at like static foot posture. It doesn't, once somebody starts moving, it's a different story. So you're saying to know how someone looks doing a thing, don't necessarily look at the shoe, look at them doing the thing. The, the common sense approach. Amazing. So I have a qu crazy question based off my experience with triathletes. When you're looking now in the modern shoe store, so there's bike fitting that is, is pretty popular through triathlete community. Is there technology like that for footwear and for running and a way to actually like tailor a shoe? Uh, so from uh, making a custom shoe standpoint, yes. Uh, a lot of professional runners will have 
custom shoes made for them where they'll get a tailored upper that fits well with their foot and things like that. Um, it's probably less important, although my my knowledge of bike fitting and, and the literature there is that there, there's probably some people that take it a little bit too far from the, the guru side of uh, you know, oh, everything sure. has to be, <laughs> everything has to be this way. You have to be lined up like this. Um, but there's also probably running coaches and PTs that do that for runners as well. So, um, I guess I kind of blanked on your, <laughs> your question and went on a, a bit of a rant. Did that, did that answer it at all? No, that definitely answers it. I, I mean, one of the things we've talked about, not just in, in running, but all sports is just individual variants sure. and, and you're going to have that it's like you were talking about with the actual shoe pattern and the shoe wear. It's like, okay, but there's going to be individual stride variants and surface variants and all these other things that you can't take into account. Yeah. It looks like you evert more, but you may always run on the same side of the road as well. That's pitched this way. Like, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I think my whole thing with that is we went through it in the early two thousands and late nineties where you had foot doctor and you had everybody with the, molds and all the other stuff i'm curious if that technology had like advanced at all but i mean it probably has a little bit but i don't think it still makes the impact that people think it does no i don't think it does either i think from a from a performance standpoint there are definitely things that matter much more than than that uh and from the injury standpoint we're no closer to curing injuries with footwear than we've ever been it's just not doesn't seem to be part of the equation. Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from Jason Torrey dropping knowledge bombs on us about footwear for the running athlete. Don't forget to be on the lookout for upcoming clinical athlete journal clubs. They're free for anyone to attend and a great opportunity to practice your research reading brain gains. Follow us on the clinical athlete social medias and head over to the website clinicalathlete.com and become a free community member as well, and you'll get all up to date on what we're doing in the realms of athlete health and performance. And now, back to the show. What about orthotics, Jason? What, what about them, Gwen? Um, <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> Here we go. I, I, uh, where I stand on orthotics uh, is that they, they should be a short-term symptom modification intervention, uh, similar to gait retraining. Uh, there's, there's indications to use them for patellofemoral pain. There's indications to use them for other types of uh, plantar heel pain, things like that. Um, I would try to get somebody out of an orthotic at a certain point, And there's definitely some debate on that, uh, depending on what healthcare profession you're in. And um, I think some really interesting things that are happening in Orthoses research right now uh, to to plug Ian Griffiths, the, the sports podiatrist, is um, nonspecific effects or or the maybe the, the placebo effect of wearing an orthotic uh, or foot orthoses. So we don't really know how much of any of our interventions the the percentage of what's going on is specific or nonspecific. Right, well, that's that goes for exercise, goes for manual therapy, goes for everything. Um, so we don't really know when we give somebody orthotics, uh, how much of this is just because we were giving them an intervention and we were giving them attention. And there was also some, uh, you know, rapport with the patient versus 
is this actually offloading certain parts of the foot or changing kinematics further up the chain that is then resolving in their issue? What do you think know. about, yeah. About the, what do you think about the analogy of, uh, in terms of what you said about just kind of a short term, assuming there are some specific effects and we are redistributing forces and, and giving them the, kind of that short term respite. What do you think about the analogy of our orthotic like being a sling for your shoulder where you can wear it to kind of offload it for a while, but if you wear it forever, you're just going to lose function of that shoulder. Yeah, I, I will use the sling analogy occasionally. I, I'm careful to not necessarily say that it will result in, in weaker foot function because that is hotly debated. Uh, so that was, um, there was a study that popped up maybe a couple months ago uh, on the volume of the foot intrinsic muscles decreasing after a certain short span of uh, wearing a foot orthosis. I think it was 12 weeks or something. Uh, and that that just raised both sides to fight each other again on the, well, if we wear these permanently, we'll, we'll lose foot function versus the, well, they need this. Otherwise, they won't be able to tolerate whatever they're doing. What were the results of the study? Uh, a smaller cross-sectional area of um, the foot intrinsic muscles. And I can't remember okay. which intrinsic muscles, um, but it was, it was basically the opposite of the, the study that showed that wearing minimalist shoes, walking around in them for 12 weeks, resulted in an increase in intrinsic foot muscle volume. Um, so yeah, it's, it's short-term research. <laughs> sounds well, like a cousin of a... Sorry, sounds like a cousin of the debate around will your core lose strength if you use a belt while lifting or high-waisted pants yes definitely that yeah i mean it also is it's worth saying we don't really know whether weakening somebody's foot intrinsic muscles would necessarily result in xyz right. anyway it hasn't been drawn as a direct link well and if you got somebody who came into your clinic who's been wearing that orthotic for five years and then you tell them basically that their feet are atrophied and half dead, <laughs> you know, it's like, damn. New amnesia. Yeah. You've been wearing these high-waisted pants for 10 years. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and obviously there are, there are extreme examples of maybe somebody has a structural deformity and that helps them, you know, with, with their everyday function, there are going to be, there's a time and place where it's going to be appropriate, but, um, my, yeah, my overall stance would be it's a, a short-term intervention to modulate pain. Okay, so kind of pulling it back to your uh, store selling or shoe selling routes and what you would do now, both as a shoe seller and as a clinician, we're going to get clinicians with, with running-related injuries into the clinic. We're also going to be talking to runners who maybe aren't hurt that just ask us about footwear. Um, and... If, if we can start to break down some of these practical recommendations that a clinician can have, just kind of a little checklist that they can go off of in their mind for both the clinician and, and the runner themselves, do you have any kind of heuristics that, that will steer people in the right direction? Yeah, so I, I will first say if – People haven't figured it out by now that I'm of the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. Uh, so my recommendations are generally going to be a little bit more conservative because in the absence of evidence that really steers me hard in one direction versus the other, 
I'm usually a little bit more cautious to take a strong stance on something. So to me, the, the most practical recommendation is advise comfort. So if, if we don't necessarily see that comfort is any better or worse than anything else, you should probably just pick comfort, right? Like it's, it's, it's just a good thing. Uh, so in order to know what is comfortable, you probably have to try on a lot of different types of shoes. And that might mean stepping outside of your comfort zone in terms of, you know, the person who's only ever worn the exact same model of Brooks shoes since they were running in high school. Try a couple different things in a couple different brands, walk around in them, run around in them. Uh, it's, it's a very subjective assessment of this feels good. Uh, and as you're trying a lot of those shoes on, advise them, uh, pick something that doesn't make it, make you feel like you have to change very much to wear this shoe. Uh, Cause if we go back to the doing too much too soon or, or trying to bridge a gap too quickly um, from the conservative side, we just want to try to avoid large changes in short periods of time. Uh, and I really like using the minimalist index as a rule of thumb for clinicians and for runners from a practical recommendation. So um, I think I think clinicians should be using this to help uh, give a runner a little bit more of a tangible way to know what's a you know what's a good shoe for them or what's a good way to transition into a different type of shoe. Um, so so that would be my main advice for clinicians, because uh, from the injury standpoint, we we don't have the evidence to say that footwear prescription should really be part of the puzzle. Um, now, my, my practical advice for runners is, of course, going to look a lot like that as well. Uh, but I, I usually add the common sense approach of make sure that the shoe that you're wearing is the right size. Uh, so we're, step on a Brannock device at a, at a shoe store. It's a little thing that measures the length and width of your foot. Uh, a lot of runners are probably picking some shoes that are too narrow for them too. It's, it's uh, not uncommon to have a wide size shoe or wide size foot, and then uh, actually just be pigeonholed into wearing a narrow shoe. Um, try a lot of shoes on again, look for something that's comfortable and that doesn't seem to be changing too much. And uh, don't be afraid to research shoes ahead of time or go to a store, research a bunch of shoes, then go home and look at their properties. You don't have to buy something every time you're there. Uh, and if you're like me, also don't be afraid to bring a dial caliper and a scale to a running store because uh, then you can you can take all the measurements that you need and, um, and maybe you'll be taken seriously there too. Now, what if you were back in your uh, shoe selling days, you saw somebody walking in with a with a caliper in their hands. What are you thinking? Like, oh, here we go. Oh, this no, I'm about, to, <laughs> I'm about to nerd out with this person. I'm about to sell this person three vapor flies. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> an, an hour of my shift is going to be talking to this person. On the oh on the gosh. the size of the shoe though, this is this is that's interesting, and and a lot of people are just like picking the wrong size. Like, how about low hanging fruit? Yeah. So when you're standing on the Brannock device, literally, you know, from from heel to toe, do you want space between your toe and the end of the shoe? You do want a little bit of space between your toe and the end of the shoe because if you think about what happens when you walk or run downhill, you're your foot is immediately going to come into contact with the front of the shoe. So you want enough 
between the longest toe that you have, which for most people is the big toe, but not everybody. Weirdos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so you do want a little bit of a space, but not enough where if you didn't have that shoe tied tight enough, your foot would just be sliding back and forth and creating a large gap. Um, so okay. you know, again, it's a comfort common sense type approach. Because the Brannock device won't be, I mean, not every shoe is going to be calibrated to that device, right? Correct. Yeah, there is there is variability amongst different brands. Um, so something like a racing flat uh, or like a track spike, might you might need to bump your size up a little bit more. Or certain brands, you might need to bump your size up or down a little bit more depending on how they fit. Um, yeah. Okay. And from a width standpoint, what do you think about the heuristic of taking the the insole out and just putting your foot on it. And if your toes splay out off the edges, it's too narrow. So I think that could work. I, I also think that if you just put your foot into the shoe and you start to see the, the toe box is just bulging outward and you can see your fifth MTP and your first MTP just pushing directly outward, then you know that that shoe is a little bit too narrow for you probably. Okay. Cool. So from a practical standpoint, we've talked a lot about, you know, what clinicians can do when they're talking to patients. But one thing I've always had a question about speaking to the athlete is what can a runner do if they're met in clinic with a clinician that tells them to just stop? How can they advocate for themselves intelligently and still still get help in that situation? Yeah, so that's a tough call. I think um, it's definitely going to be dependent on the clinician that they're working with and how much that clinician is maybe willing to budge from where they're comfortable to where they need to be to really meet the patient. Um, I would, you know, it's, it, I would always advise a runner if if you don't feel like you're getting the type of care that you deserve, then maybe you're not seeing the right healthcare provider. Um, but I don't know. I think that's a, that's a tough call. It's, it's, it's addressing the, the beliefs and behaviors of other clinicians. And I don't know that a runner is going to win that battle too many times. Cause the PT is just going to be like, Oh, I got this crazy runner on my caseload. They never want to listen. And then, <laughs> well, yeah. And it's, it's 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 almost like if if you work with a lot of runners, then you should know that unless you work with them, they're going to go see somebody else, and they're going to see somebody that tells them what they want to hear and/or works with them. So that clinician should really be thinking about how do I get this person to be doing as much as they want on their end, while also doing the things that need to happen for them to improve. Hashtag clinicalathy provider. And then if the athlete just doesn't want to, doesn't want to hear it, if they're going to keep going and finding somebody who's just going to tell them all the things that they want to hear, well, then that's on the athlete, but there's definitely some give and take there. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's going to be situations where it's just not a right fit between the clinician and the patient. And that's okay. We know that. Um, but if you, as the clinician are doing as much as you can, then it's going to mean bending a little bit at times to, meet the patient where they're at. So I, I think to John's point, for any of the athletes listening, 
also come in there with an, uh, a mind open enough to change some things up potentially if need be and understand that those changes many times can just be short term. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's definitely but, fair. I think my big thing with it is as an athlete, you know, it's unfortunate to say this, but I feel like uh, athletes that are beyond like the, your, your typical organized sport, that's one of those niches that a lot of clinicians go, I want to work with athletes, but they really, what they say is they want to work with team sport athletes people who are doing their own training and stuff typically get like this bad vibe in clinic because if you start to give suggestions, they put up a wall. What I'm basically saying is like, you've got to meet also the clinician where they're at and at points be an advocate for yourself and say, okay, cool. That's, uh, I understand that. I really feel as though though sometimes that maybe my, my running volume gets out of hand or, you know, there's times where I feel like uh, I'm not training enough. So I just push hard be willing to have the conversation as opposed to be like, he told me not to run. I'm never going to talk to this person ever again. Okay. Give him a shot for a second, give him or her a shot and then try to have a hard conversation um, because it's worth it to you. I'm always about cost benefit ratios, the cost benefit. Like you can talk all you want about the cost benefit of not running versus running the cost benefit of having a hard conversation with the healthcare provider you're working with is end up, probably going to have a, a good benefit to it if it's approached in the right way. Yeah. And I would, I would add to uh, if there's a coach and if the runner has a personal coach, get the coach involved. Now, that's oh, always yeah. something that we should be doing. I a hundred percent agree with that. That's awesome. That, that huge continuum is great. Well, especially with running athletes that don't come to me very often, but when they do, like, I feel much more comfortable when the coach is involved because I don't want to to step on toes or, or like I, w- I want us all to be on the same page. Um, and we talk about that all the time with our lifters, but like I said, especially when it's a realm that I'm not super comfortable in, like I want that expertise on my side to be able to bounce ideas off of, you know, to, to help the athlete as best we can. Um, Jason, just a quick, this is totally a question that I should have asked well before this, but when we're talking about all these things and we're saying running, we're conceptualizing this type of running middle distance kind of, and beyond, like if there's any sprinters listening and we're like talking about heel strike, like, well, they're a crappy sprinter anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say the, the majority of, of probably what we're talking about is in the uh, long distance and beyond. So if we want to categorize from the 5k and beyond, uh, so our 5k half marathon, marathon distances, typically known as like the, the long distance, three um, K is like a debatable mid range between middle distance and long distance. And then typically your 1500 and 800 is your middle distance. Uh, most of the research on, uh, well, at least on the performance side of these shoes uh, is in long distance runners. Um, it's, it's interesting because even with this new, these new types of shoes, we don't know where that, uh, pace or that that race distances where they are no longer as effective as just your traditional racing spike so Mm. um i would even think like the 800 meter which is the uh shortest distance running event because it's it's the first distance where there's more of an aerobic component than an anaerobic component uh, whereas your 400 meter is is flipped and there's more anaerobic than aerobic 
I would think that for the 800, uh, you know, a big marathon racing shoe like this is not as effective as just wearing the, the light racing flats that are already being used. And um, that's independent of the fact that World Athletics has banned the use of these marathon shoes on track anyway. Um, so yeah, I would say it's, it's for the uh, longer, more sustainable running paces that mostly what we're talking about. Okay. Jared and John, you got any other questions or thoughts? No, I'm, I feel really good about this. And, uh, and Jason, thanks for fielding these or the ones that I've tossed to you and, you know, that we've collectively asked of you. And my hope is that people, as they listen to this, um, particularly clinicians are going to be able to come away from this and really at the end of the day, just be able to serve their clients better and, and maybe recognize if the if and when the client needs a level of care or a level of specialty where maybe it's outside of their lane, be able to have a network, <coughs> clinical athlete, um, where they can they can hook the client up with someone who can deliver on on what they need. So just being able to air out some of these common situations and questions that go through my head has been really helpful. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway for me, we've dichotomized strength sports and endurance sports. And the really cool thing is, is this entire time we've talked about principles that spill into all of them. You've talked about training load. You've talked about constraints, basically with, you know, the, the type of footwear and all that kind of stuff. This, it's all the same. It's all the same thing. And that's really, really cool to me because we can talk the same language, even though people would consider these different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, so. you, you guys and I are not so different. We we all really like numbers. They're all very arbitrary. Um, yeah, I see and a lot of parallels. Into stores. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't like running unless it's after a donut. That's, I mean, it's cool. Modifier. <laughs> now I can talk about my weightlifting shoes, like very low compliance, high resilience, <laughs> crazy heel toe drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sick. Um, Jason, this was awesome, man. Where can people connect with you? Where can they uh, reach out to you and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, so I, um, I'm on Twitter, I would say, most of the time at Jason Torrey PT. Uh, Instagram is, is uh, jasontorrey.dpt, I think. Um, reach out to me via either of those. Email is, is uh, jasontorreypt at gmail.com, I think. Um, yeah, mostly just posting running research and running related content, stuff like that. Always uh, looking for new articles and um, yeah. Well, you have a blog too, right? Oh yeah. So I also have a, a blog. Uh, it's a howtomovement.blogspot um, or I'll occasionally throw some stuff about running related injuries and whatever else I'm thinking about it at, at that time. Uh, okay. that, that might go a little, a little quiet while I'm in residency. That one might not take the, the front of the stage, but uh, I'll still be active on other social media. Well, you mentioned complex complex systems a few times during the call here, and you've got a couple pieces up there that are really, really good. Um, that I recommend people check out the blog and, and see how you're conceptualizing those things in your mind. You know, trying to reconcile all all of these uh, all of these unknowns is really good stuff. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, Jason, thanks again. This was really, really good. Um, and thank you to our, our five listeners now. Hopefully you're holding strong um, until Jason returns to you. 
and we will see you next time. We'd like to thank Jason Torrey for being on the show. You can check out the show notes for a link to the minimalist index that Jason referenced during the show, as well as contact info for him and the Clinical Athlete crew. Speaking of, thank you to my homies, Jared Madar and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the Clinical Athlete community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And remember, if you want to dive even deeper into the Clinical Athlete community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions, and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.